morning, IPC. My name is Paul Pendleton, and for 23 years, I was a pastor of a church about this size, actually. I was here two years ago, and man, this place was packed right to the rafters. There were people even up in the balcony wanting to be part of your worship service. So I just wanted to share that with you guys today. I uh, am a friend of your pastor's, uh, Chris, and uh, really appreciate his ministry. And I'm so thankful to be able to come back here. Normally when you have compassion here, you have someone with immense talent and great hair, and uh, they're going to share the gospel message with you and make you cry. Uh, You're not going to get that today. I am a preacher, but I am here to set the tone for something a little different today. We're calling it a hybrid compassion service where at the end of my talk, we're going to go to a video and for 13 minutes we have what I like to call the real speaker who's going to motivate you and help you to get on track here with compassion. Now just so you know, my testimony is very similar to your worship pastors, Jeff, in that I came out of a life uh, that, uh, well, we'll just call it of addiction and found Jesus. So I have a real heart for evangelism. I love evangelism. What I've discovered over my years as a pastor is that not very many people have a gift of evangelism. Very few people are bold. And I want to share with you today some of the ways that you can be part of the Great Commission through compassion without having to go stand on a street corner. You know, like I said, I was always a skeptic uh, because I didn't come from Uh, a church background. So whenever I watch the news, read the news about the latest earthquake or hurricane relief fund, I always wonder, will my donation really make a difference? Will it even get there? As a pastor for 23 years, I organized so many fundraisers, led so many missions trips to help the needy, the homeless, and the desperate. We had countless missionaries, Christian organizations come to speak, but none of them nor could my missions experience help me shake that nagging itch at the back of my brain asking, are we really helping the hurting or was this just another attempt at us helping us, the givers, feel good about ourselves? In 2010, another devastating earthquake had hit Haiti, the poorest country in our hemisphere. Millions of dollars were raised, poured into that country. But a decade later, After two more earthquakes, nothing seemed to have changed. And to make matters worse, I just read a book called Fixing Failed States, where the authors, Ghani and Lockhart, shared that over $40 billion, billion, had gone into Haiti over 40 years, and still they were one of the poorest countries on the planet. It seemed as if no progress had been made. As you can imagine, I was pretty frustrated when my old friend Jay Calder, who was here at IPC in 2019, called my church and asked if he could come and speak on behalf of Compassion. Now, I didn't know much about Compassion, but I remember asking him if he was trying to raise money for a water well, and if so, forget it, because I'd read somewhere that 73% of all wells built in Africa were broken beyond repair within three years of their installation, and I was not interested in another temporary fix. But what he shared with me next rocked my world. He said compassion was not like other Christian organizations who hoped that water or education or school supplies would bring about everlasting change. 
For compassion, it was all about releasing children from poverty, get this, in Jesus' name. In fact, their focus was simply on what they called the three C's, Christ, children, and the church. Compassion has agreements with countries, even Haiti, that distributed money, or sorry, money that comes in raised through compassion goes directly to the church where our programs happen. Now, I was intrigued, but I was still a little skeptical. In fact, while our church was very impressed, as you were by Jay's presentation, and many children were sponsored, I had to see it myself. And in February of 2018, I accepted an invitation to visit a compassion center for a week in Nicaragua, where one of your ministries is. And let me tell you, it was a week that shook my world. And for a pastor, it was a dream come true, particularly one with a bent for evangelism. When uh, what I witnessed in Nicaragua was an organization in action, helping children, the most vulnerable people in society, in a way that blew my mind. They went into communities in need, registered children into a program that would provide food, clothing, tutoring, medical checkups, and love, like a lot of Christian charities all over the world. But that wasn't all. They told these struggling kids about a hope that would not just keep them away from the pimps and the gangs and the traffickers, but that would provide a way and a life that was transformational. Every day they would come to the local church to be cared for and loved in a way that Jesus would have loved them through trained caregivers and teachers. Every day they would leave their crumbling homes with their empty shelves and broken parents or most often a beaten down mom and enter a world that provided an emotional, physical, educational, and most importantly, spiritual embrace in Jesus' name. Here's the cool thing. This is what I discovered. That 80% of the children that enter into a compassion program, a sponsorship program, are not Christians when they come in. But by the time they graduate as adults, 80% of them go on to lead Christian lives. Isn't that incredible? Can you imagine if our churches here in North America, here in Canada, could produce results like that? Because the programs were held in churches during the week, those kids who were nurtured by compassion caregivers were then invited to attend church with these caregivers on Sunday. And not only would they attend, but they would invite their unsponsored siblings and their parents. And our statistics tell us that for every child that comes to faith in a compassion program, four other family members make a similar commitment. I, I'm, I was just blown away by this. And again, I was a pastor and a skeptic. But not only that, but because of the influx of children and parents flocking to churches on Sundays, we discovered that within three years of a compassion program coming into a church, that church would triple in size with people hungry for the word in the 25 poorest countries on the planet. Now, can you imagine the Great Commission being fulfilled in that way? I was blown away. By the end of that week, having seen the incredible success of this holistic discipleship program firsthand, we were treated to an alumni supper where graduates of the Compassion Sponsorship Program 
would share their stories of transformation from malnourished and hopeless to spiritually filled up and grown up. And most of them were giving back to Compassion by serving them as mentors, teachers, and some even as doctors in our program. You'll meet a Compassion graduate who's now a doctor through the video in about 10 minutes. At the end of that week, of my week in Nicaragua, I return home excited to share what I had seen and many more children were sponsored the next Sunday at our church and given a chance to thrive presently and eternally in God's kingdom. In fact, I was so sold out to this program that about six months after my journey to Nicaragua, I left my growing church to work for Compassion. Remember that old commercial? You have to be really old to remember this, of the Remington shaver, where the guy, Victor Kayam, says, I was so impressed with this shaver, I bought the company. Well, that's me. I was so impressed by Compassion, I went to work for them. Now, I'm sure your ministry leaders are wondering, what makes Compassion so effective? Well, I've already told you, it's the three C's. We focus on children because they're the most vulnerable in society. And we only run our programs in churches because we believe the church is God's chosen vehicle to fulfill the Great Commission. And we focus all our programming on Christ, who alone can save us from this broken planet. Everything has Christ at its center. Now that I've told you what we do, let me take a few moments to share why we do it. We focus on children in the church and always through Christ because of what we call our theology of poverty, which our former CEO, Dr. Barry Slonwhite, explained in his book, Strategic Compassion. I do have a couple out there. They're about 10 bucks if you're interested. And when other people are asked to make a list of what causes poverty, their answers seem familiar. We've heard them all. Overpopulation, lack of food and water, poor distribution of resources, ignorance, unfair judicial systems, ineffective economic systems, war, conflict, and religious intolerance. Now, each of these responses can be categorized into one of the following common definitions of policy. That poverty is a lack of necessities, poverty is a lack of knowledge and skills, or poverty is a lack, a lack of power. And when you look at this list, it's easy to understand why so many of our poverty alleviation efforts only address the symptoms and not the cause. So put another way, if we were to succinctly describe the world's understanding of poverty and how to end it, the picture would probably look like this. The poor lack necessities, so the solution is give a man a fish. The poor lack knowledge, so the solution is teach a man to fish. The poor lack power, so the solution is empower a man or woman to buy a boat. Now these strategies are good and reasonable, but they imply that those people living in poverty have deficits. While the role of the development worker is to provide what's missing, to fill the hole, if you will. A view that's given rise to what's now known as the Western Savior Complex, where we have to be the ones to bring in and do everything to help them because they, they can't help themselves. Yet all this approach is identified are the results of poverty and not the cause of poverty. We want to get to that. The truth is poverty is not just an economic or educational or social problem. It's a spiritual problem that stems from our own brokenness 
which results in violence, conflict, greed, racism, and marginalization. Now, because we are broken, no system that we develop to fight poverty will work in the long term unless it also addresses our need for spiritual healing and wholeness, and only Christ can bring that. This becomes clear as we look at the genesis of poverty, or what is poverty, and we're all familiar with the Genesis account of creation, but how often have we looked at it and what it tells us about po uh, poverty? Now, in the beginning, there was no word for poverty because there was no poverty. And throughout the first five days of creation, God created everything needed to support human life on this planet. And it's clear to me that he too was very pleased with his work. And at the end of each creative day, God stood back, surveyed his accomplishments, and reflected on its beauty and declared it good. But something different happened on the final day of creation. This is where I want to focus today. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food and to all the beasts of the earth, and to all the birds of the sky, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. On that sixth day, God created this masterpiece, a piece of himself, unlike any other component of creation, and then he stood back, and he admired his best creative work, his very own likeness, and he declared it was very good. And not only that, but God created for Adam and Eve, not only were they very good, but what he created for them was perfect. It provided everything they needed for a comfortable life. Now get this, think about this. They would live without ever having to work or worry about their needs. There was no need to build bigger barns or possess more land to grow more crops. There was no worry about either droughts or floods. In a world, the words, in such a world, the words poverty and need did not exist in their vocabulary. Then things, of course, took a terrible turn. And as so often happens with affluence and comfort, we can relate to that, Adam and Eve got bored. And they began to take things for granted. What became Want became need, and life became a quest for something new and exciting. And with everything they could possibly need at their disposal, there was one thing that God declared off-limits. Here it is from Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now those of you who are familiar with the next chapter of Genesis know that Eve was tempted by Satan to eat the forbidden fruit. Then she encouraged man, Adam, to share her newfound prize and together they ate and that one act changed the entire trajectory of life on earth. And today we continue to reap the awful consequences of the action of our first parents. 
In a world where the concepts of poverty and need had not existed, poverty becomes the default setting. But note that poverty, as depicted in Genesis, is not primarily about a lack of resources. It begins with the breaking of relationships between us and God and between each other. So in addition to their shame, Adam and Eve are evicted from their luxurious home, suffered a loss of innocence, pain now in childbearing, and tremendous hardships. They had to struggle to survive, forced to eke out a living through hard work. Because of the sin in Adam and Eve, all of humanity came under a curse, and it's this curse that's at the heart of poverty today. We are a broken people, and as a broken people, we've created broken systems. When we think about poverty, we're actually focusing on the results of those broken systems. Think of Haiti right now. Starvation, injustice, corruption, disease, environmental degradation. However, we cannot address the symptoms of poverty without addressing its root. And what's its root? It's sin. But right after Genesis 3, we see that God has not abandoned his creation to suffering. We see that he has actually a plan to reconcile and heal his creation and bring it back to the kind of wholeness it reflected before the fall. And he puts that plan into action immediately. While the fall cursed the world with sin, leaving humankind under judgment, God continues to care for all his creation, providing a way back to reconcile into a harmonious relationship with himself by revealing the coming of this Savior, the offspring of Eve who will crush the serpent's head. And you would have read that in Genesis 3.15. Simply put, he provides a spiritual solution to what we call poverty, a spiritual problem. Jesus is the only answer to poverty. For over 70 years, Compassion has worked to release children from poverty in Jesus' name in the 25 poorest countries on the planet. So you say, that's great, good for Compassion. What's my role? Let me tell you about what you can do and again, this is one of my big pet peeves. And again, I came to Christ at 24 so pumped up about this message of Jesus that I had never really heard about before. The first time I ever entered a church building, I gave my heart to Jesus. Nine months later, I was at a Bible college, a place I'd never heard of in Kitchener at Emmanuel Bible College. I graduated uh, and then started into ministry and thought everybody was going to be as excited about reaching people for Jesus as I was. Because I had missed out on this for 24 years of my life, and I didn't want anyone else to miss out on the benefits of knowing Jesus, the hope that he provides, the forgiveness that he provides, the eternal life that he provides. And I was shocked to find out that most of the church was not as interested in evangelism as I was. That's why I was especially excited to hear what Pastor Jeff was sharing with you guys earlier. In fact, if Francis Chan is correct, he's an author, preacher, 95% of Christians are not participating in the Great Commission. The church is a sleeping giant. 95% of us are not leading people to Jesus. 
If you want to be part of the Great Commission ministry, can I encourage you today by telling you that you don't have to stand on the street corner and bark at people or go door to door. That's people's big pet peeve, right? All you need to do for the price of a medium coffee is sponsor a child and you will be able to enter into a relationship with a child in need which will change their lives. You can write letters to this child. You can help celebrate birthdays with this child, Christmas with this child. You can even go visit the child at a compassion center once we get through COVID. This is real, and the need is real. It's even more real. There's an even greater need during this pandemic. So what we set up right now on your IPC website, and you can go to it on your phone, uh, and you can sponsor a child right there on your phone. If you go to the IPC website, there's a button to click, and it'll take you right to a whole host of children that you can sponsor. Also, you can go to the table outside and talk to uh, our compassion volunteer, Sarah, who works as a teacher in this area, and she will uh, give you more information about how you can sponsor a child. But now I want you to turn uh, your attention to a video that we want to show you and we'll explain to you a little bit more about this need and about your role in the lives of these children. Let's go to the video. Hey there, friends. My name is Mike Peninga, and I am coming to you from one of my favorite lookouts in my hometown of Kelowna, British Columbia. I spent 18 years pastoring at two churches here in Kelowna, which is where I came to know and love the work of compassion. And not that long ago, I had the privilege to join the team of Compassion Canada to help build bridges between Canadians who want to do good, who want to have an impact, and the work of Compassion, which is releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name. Now, just up this valley, about seven minutes, is the school that I went to as a kid. And when I was in grade one, our teacher thought it would be great to take us on a field trip. No, we didn't go to a museum or an aquarium or a science center or some other cool activity. We went to the local grocery store. And we were asked as grade one students to bring one dollar. Now, back then it was actually a dollar bill. I know I am that old. But our teacher wanted to teach us a lesson to learn the value of a dollar. She wanted us to wrestle with the many things that we could do with the dollar and to watch what we would choose to spend it on. So just imagine for a moment, if you could, a class of 36-year-olds wandering around a grocery store, eyeing up all the things they could get for a dollar. And I watched as my friends found the candy section. You could get a decent amount of treats for a dollar back then. But you see, I grew up Dutch, and I wanted to stretch my dollar as far as it could possibly go, even as a six-year-old. And so I walked around the store, and I discovered that with my one dollar, I could get five apples. Now remember, we live here in the Okanagan Valley. There are literally orchards everywhere. Apples are not hard to come by. But in my six-year-old mind, five apples was a worthwhile return for my one dollar investment because there are five people in my family. And this way I thought everyone could benefit from my $1. So I came home that day so proud to show my mom of these five apples because in my mind, I had invested my dollar well. I had taken what was in my hand and I'd put it to what I felt was good use. Now you may have a sense of where I am going with this because the Bible 
is filled with stories of God inviting his people to take what's in their hand and to put it for work for his purposes. You know, three stories come to mind really easily. You probably can think of a lot more. I recall an 80-year-old shepherd named Moses who was hanging out with some sheep when he saw something that just caught his attention. It was a bush on fire. But the amazing thing was this fire did not consume the bush because God was using it to get Moses's attention. And God asked Moses this very question. You can read it for yourself in Exodus chapter 4. God says to Moses, what's in your hand? And I've learned over the years that when God asks a question, it isn't for his benefit, but for ours. He already knows the answer. He wants to see if you and I know the answer. So Moses looks at his hand and you know what he finds there is a staff. It's just a walking stick. It's, it's really a simple piece of wood. But that staff to Moses represented so much more. It, it represented Moses's identity. People knew that he was a shepherd because he carried this shepherd's staff and it represented his income. That's how Moses made his money, by, by shepherding sheep. And thirdly, it represented his influence. This is how Moses influenced the sheep to go where he wanted them to. He would tap them or guide them gently using the staff. And so God looks at Moses and he says to Moses, take what you have in your hand, take your staff, which is your identity and your income and your influence and throw it down on the ground. And you probably remember what happens next. It's in Exodus four, that staff turns into a snake. That's kind of cool. And then God told Moses to pick it back up again by the tail and the snake turned back into a staff. But this is something that I missed for so many years. From that point on, it was never referred to as Moses' staff. Do you know what it was called from then on? It was called the rod of God. It was the rod of God that was used to part the Red Sea, to perform miracles in front of Pharaoh and to make water come out of a rock. It was still just a simple stick. There was nothing magical about it. But once Moses surrendered it to God, it became the rod of God. So what's in your hand? Fast forward a few hundred years, another shepherd boy, this one, a teenager named David. This story is found in 1 Samuel 17. One day David is sent to visit his brothers on the battlefield and he finds out that they are paralyzed by fear of this giant named Goliath. It's a good reason to be paralyzed as well because Goliath was massive, over nine feet tall. His armor alone weighed 125 pounds. So what does David do? I love this. He does what every good teenage boy would do. Let me at him, I'll fight him. And David looks at what he has in his hands. It's a slingshot. It was another tool for a shepherd to ward off enemies of the flock. In his hand, it was a slingshot and five stones to face a nine-foot armed killer. And you probably know how this story goes. One stone straight to the forehead kills the giant victory. Because David was willing to offer back to God this simple tool in his hand. So what's in your hand? One more story, probably my favorite. It's one of the few stories recorded in all four Gospels, so it should get our attention. We see it in the Gospel of John chapter 6. Jesus was teaching to thousands of people on a hillside and it was getting late. And the disciples said to Jesus, hey, send the people home so they can get something to eat. And Jesus said this, you feed them. I would have loved to see their expression. The disciples said, well, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. But one disciple, Andrew, I love Andrew, he brought a boy to Jesus. 
and he said, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? It's just a dollar, Jesus. What can you do with a dollar? It's just a shepherd's staff. It's just a slingshot. It's just a small lunch. What can you do with that? Well, in the boy's hands, it is just lunch, but in Jesus's hands, it's provision for the multitude. Again, you probably know what happens next. Jesus takes what is given him. He blesses it. He multiplies it. He passes it around. And this is the best part of the story. I love this. In the end, there is more left over than there was at the start because that's how the economy of Jesus's kingdom works. Now picture for a minute what the scene would have been like as the disciples began asking around for food. I imagine there were some who would have hid what they had because the people there thought that if they gave, they would have less. But this boy was willing to offer what was in his hands to Jesus. And only then did he discover that there was more left over, 12 basketful of leftover bread than this kid had brought in the first place. And I know this part isn't in the Bible, so forgive me, but imagine he goes home that evening and his mom asks, hey, how was your lunch? And this boy breaks into the biggest grin. Mom, it was amazing. My lunch fed thousands today. And then one step further, imagine Jesus comes back through that town. Don't you think that boy would be the first in line to offer whatever he had? Because he had seen what Jesus had done before and he was not gonna miss what he was about to do next. So what's in your hands? It's really the question that Jesus asks all of us. And the truth is we can hide it or deny it or minimize it. But what if doing that means that we miss out on being part of God's miracle work in our midst? Fast forward again to the early 1950s. A Christ follower named Everett Swanson followed God's call to South Korea to preach the gospel to the army troops. And while he was there, he was deeply impacted by the children orphaned by war. It's as if God placed this question on Everett's heart. What's in your hands? And so Everett Swanson began raising funds to help develop the sponsorship program to support these orphan kids for a few dollars a month. And I can guarantee you, friends, that Everett Swanson would have no idea that what God birthed in and through him in 1952, 70 years later, would result in more than 2.2 million kids in 25 countries, supported through the work of 8,000 frontline church partners and thousands of people like you and me, because that's what God can do. And when those sponsored kids grow up, many of them take what's in their hands and offer it back to God. And this cycle of impact continues. You know, recently I was so moved by the story of Jennifer Alvarado in Ecuador, and I wanted to share it with you today. My name is Jennifer Alvarado. I am related to Passion International since I was five years old. I formed as a medical doctor. Now I am a infant gastroenterologist. Ser una persona en el futuro diferente. 
es bastante pesado ser mamá, ser esposa, ser médica y trabajar de forma presencial, trabajar por medio de telesalud. Hay días que estoy cansada. Eh, es como un boomerang. Dieron y ahora vuelven. You know, I love that phrase from Dr. Jennifer, it's like a boomerang. I was given, so now I am giving back. I was entrusted with something, so now I am offering it to others. Back in 2012, when I was pastoring a local church here in Kelowna, I was invited by Compassion to visit Ecuador, to meet my sponsored kid, Demaris, and to see the work of Compassion firsthand. Here's two photos of Demaris, first as a five-year-old when I met her, and now as she is as a 14-year-old. You know, as a pastor, what God had entrusted into my hands was a local congregation. And so I leveraged what he gave me to tell the story of the impact the sponsorship can actually have on the holistic development of a child. The reality is oftentimes kids who live in poverty just don't think anyone cares for them because that's what their world tells them. But we have an opportunity to send a message to a child that someone does care about them. We can be the tangible act of love in their lives. And that's what compassion means, love in action. That's the act of sponsorship and it makes a difference. And you see it in Dr. Jennifer's story. I'm seeing it firsthand in the story of Demarice and in millions of others. So here's the invitation today. You can take what God has entrusted to your hands and you can give it back to him in an incredibly practical way. It's the story of Moses' staff, of David's slingshot, of the boy's lunch. For $41 a month, you can sponsor a child and you can change the trajectory of a life. If you already sponsor a child like many of you do, thank you. Would you write to them? Would you pray for them? Would you invite others who you know to consider joining you and 82,000 other Canadians who partner with Compassion? Maybe today you find yourself this season with the capacity to say yes to one more child. Don't miss what God is inviting you into. So it comes back to this, friends. What will you do with your one dollar? What will you have to show for it? What impact will come from it? May I invite you to lay it down, to offer it back, and to watch what God does in and through you for his kingdom purposes.